0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 43 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday, the 25th of November. And Leon, we're talking to Matt Simpson, the currency analyst this week.
1: That's right. Uh, Matt Simpson's a cur- uh, currency analyst from Think Markets. He's out in Singapore. And he's going to be talking to us all about the big. ...trends facing the money markets. There's been some huge movements in the dollar this week. It went south. Yeah, quite a way south, didn't it? Currency markets are just so volatile, so he's going to be shedding a lot of light on that. And after that, we're going to have a chat with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson. And he's going to be talking to us about the government's MIFO coming out uh, just before Christmas. Uh, He says don't expect much joy from that, and uh, we can expect another budget blowout. Budget won't get into surplus for at least maybe another 10 years at least maybe.
0: Well, Morrison's talking about 2021, isn't he? 2021, but it'll be a few years after that. Yep, that's true. Anyway, let's listen to Matt Simpson and the
2: world of currency.
1: Matt Simpson, tell us a bit about the currency markets at the moment. They seem to be so volatile.
2: Yep. um, The Trump victory certainly had a huge awakening call across global markets in general. Now, I think the If you want to pinpoint the moment that uh, it turned to risk on, it was when Trump gave his victory speech last week. Since then, you saw a lot of traders recalculate what was going to happen. And all of a sudden, it seems like Trump has saved the world. You've got the reflation trades back on, um, which ultimately assumes we could not only get a a December hike from the Fed, but we could actually get another two or three maybe next year. Um, So the pretty common theme that's been um, occurring since last Wednesday um, is long dollar, short emerging markets. Um, based primarily on expectations of uh, more uh, hiking from the Fed, and, but also because we don't know exactly which policies Trump's going to implement. Um, if you're an export nation, you're probably a little bit worried right now, and that's seeing money flow out of uh, the emerging markets for, for those both reasons. Um, when you look across other markets, uh, some of the majors, the Aussie dollar is still relatively stable. Uh, against the US dollar, stubbornly so. I guess that's why it's called the battler. Uh, you've also got the Kiwi dollar. Bit of negative sentiment there, of course, from uh, the unfortunate earthquakes, uh, but that's holding up relatively well. Um, and I think we're now in a situation where um, traders probably haven't fully priced in the prospect yet for the rate hike. So if you get any good data from the US, um, I think it's just further reasons to fuel that bullish fire. So uh, looking at further ahead, where do you see it going? Well, I think we're in a bit of a funny time now because if you look at between now and January and Trump comes in, it's, the market's got very political all of a sudden. Now, We know that he's not even in yet, and it's a lot easier to say things on a campaign than it is to get them through. So the uncertainty at the moment is what's he going to get through, when he's going to announce it, and what order. Um, But at the moment, if let's assume that he's going to get everything right and that he promised, um, or even half of it, um, then it's going to be pretty bullish for the US dollar, I'd say, going into the rest of the year. Um, It's also going to be bullish stocks as well, uh, bearish of bonds. Um, Nothing goes in a straight line, of course. uh, But I think really, as we started, I actually thought this was going to be a carbon copy of last year where we get to December, we get a measly rate hike and a really disappointing statement. And that would have been bearish for the US dollar and supportive of commodity currencies. Now I think what's probably going to happen is it's all going to be about that statement. And if we get further is in that statement in December, then it's probably going to start the Aussie and the Kiwi on the, on the back foot on the, on the start of next year. In fact, if I look at Aussie at the moment, we're trying to look for an inflection point. Now later this week, you've got two key indicators, which I'm keeping a look on, which is uh, the, um, the imp- unemployment data and you've also got wage growth. So if you remember last month when unemployment it was, wasn't great, we had this ratio of really weak part-time to full-time ratio. And that really triggered a bit of a sell-off in the Aussie. So if we then had weak wage growth, um, which should track with inflation, if that comes in weak, that undermines the recent inflation data that was supportive of the Aussie. So I think if you've got the two misses this week, that might actually finally see the Aussie below 75 cents. Um, but then, of course, there's other there's other forces at play to how far down we'll
1: go well the, the reality is that uh, wages growth is probably stuck at about 2.1 percent for the time being and uh it's going to be fairly fairly subdued which means of course we're going to have very low inflation mm. which will be stuck there for quite some time unemployment will probably hang around the 5.6 5.7 range for some time
2: so where do you see the aussie dollar going so going back to the employment data, uh, very quickly, I've noticed that traders aren't really reacting much to the unemployment. So if you've got a really... Week full-time culling and an okay part-time, they took more notice of that on the day than the unemployment, which went down to 5.6. So that's what I'm saying. If we do get another repeat of that, where I think it's uh, you look at the the ratio of jobs isn't skewed towards full-time jobs then that might rule break. But technically you're above 75.5. You've got, you're literally sat right now on the 2016 bullish trend line from the low. So it's at a a pivotal level. Um, now I'd say that any up rally in the Aussie is probably going to be, capped because you've got these expectations of the Fed hiking. So really, I'm looking for that diverging theme. And that's what I could maybe see playing out, that if we do get these downside misses, that should see the downside acceleration. But again, it's debatable whether you're going to get below 74, simply because there's so many other forces going on. So look at the inflationary trade for copper at the moment. That has a shot up through the roof. Um, That should be supportive of the Aussie. Um, So frustratingly, I, I like to look for big moves and big swings. And I'm not really seeing compelling case to get the Aussie moving out of that sort of 75 to 77 range just yet.
1: That said, I mean, the market is pricing in something like an 84% chance that the Fed will rate with hike rates next month. PIMCO put out a note last week saying uh, they expected the Fed to, um, particularly with Trump's election, to hike rates uh, three times in 2017, which I thought was probably towards a higher end. But uh, uh, I I thought uh, that that surprised me. But uh, uh, so what would that do? Assuming all of that comes through, what would that do for the Aussie dollar?
2: Well that's gonna I would say that would send it lower. Now if you look at the US dollar index, that's been on a pretty good rally now for the best part of two months, if not longer. Um yet the Aussie has remained resilient throughout that, but that's because we were only expecting one measly hike and a pretty boring statement in December. That's totally changed as of Trump getting in. Uh so now if we think that any data now between the next month, the more good data that comes out of the U.S., the more that's going to wear on the Aussie as we start assuming those two or three rate hikes. I'd probably go for maybe two at this stage. The uncertainty there for how many we get, of course, is you just don't know what policies are going to bring in, more order. And that's going to see some volatility and swings and positions adjusted. Um, but if we start to see that strong data from the U.S., you can that's pretty much as good as an extra rate hike effectively that should push the Aussie lower but of course if you start to get mixed data like we're getting accustomed to and then you start to get mixed messages from Mr. Trump then of course that's going to remain in mixed markets now I don't really see a reason to sell the US dollar but it may take some of the wind out of the the, the dollar moves but overall you look at the US dollar I think there's a lot of catching up to it on some crosses so dollar yen for example could go much higher th- throughout the year
1: and, of course, the Chinese one is probably going to go lower too as well, wouldn't it?
2: I think it is. Depending on which metric you look at, what's interesting about that is um, there's still that fear of intervention, uh, naturally. That, that's what we're accustomed to. But if you look at the broad basket that it's uh, weighted against, then there's not been a huge amount of movement. So if you look at dollar, C and H, that technically is a beautiful chart to, to buy on yet traders are hesitant to go long in it after they've had those very vocal battles with, with hedge funds but if you look at say the spread between CNH and CNY that's on for, onshore and offshore that's historically low so it's only when you start to see that spread blow out that the probability of an intervention comes in and really now that the, uh, they're part of the SDR basket they're supposed to be playing ball with the market anyway so all they're actually doing it's not really about the uh, renminbi it's about the US dollar the US dollar is going up it's the fed expectations they're just uh, mixing, uh, sorry, changing the fixing points. And right now, I think it's, it's moved to the area that it was fixed at for about two years following GFC. So you, you could argue that might be a natural level of support there. But further, on, I wouldn't be too surprised if it goes down to seven or lower.
1: How do you advise your clients to manage this volatility? I mean, it must be, you know, they must be on the edge all the time because it's just changing constantly.
2: Yeah, that, that is how markets work. Um, so, unfortunately, you can't just have that, that one-way trade with all it didn't come up. And really what I say is it's just common sense needs applied. You'll know there'll be some spots or some uh, periods of time where there'll be um, lots of lots of positions being placed before the big events. So, we know that any Fed meeting coming up. Um, what's going to make next year more complicated now is politics. Um, it's sort of changed. If you put, look at Brexit, you look at what's going on in the States, mixed potential for Europe next year with lots of votes. Which could end up with another uh, similar scenario to Brexit, then that's in for a very complicated year. In which case, sometimes the best trade is no trade at all. um, If you don't, can't some of that volatility. But at the same time, if you know these events are coming up, um, what's been happening in recent years, in actual fact, if we it's pricing in, it's, it's pretty quite leading up to the event. Um, it's when you have too many people on the wrong side of the trade, that's when the volatility comes. And Brexit's the best example we have in recent years of nobody thinking something terrible can happen. And you saw a 16% move in uh, pound yen, which is extremely high for for currencies. But even when you look at Compare that to what happened throughout uh, the uh, election last week. Actually, um, by recent measures, it wasn't really that volatile. Yes, it was volatile. But I think that also depends on how large is your account, how do you manage that. And for me, I would say to clients, you've you've only really got to use a certain percentage of, of your account on a single idea. And you need to allow for potentials for gaps going past you. Um, and that should really dictate how much you have in the market in the first place, what position you use percentage-wise to your risk tolerance. That's going to vary from person to person.
1: So if you're an investor, you need to uh, take, take in mind that politics are going to shape the market and politics are pretty unpredictable. So you have to fact- factor that into your investment decisions.
2: I believe so, yes. And um, well, maybe scenario planning should always do that anyway. So for example, let's let's look at extreme outcomes. Let's look at Trump does everything that he says he's going to do, um, nobody in Europe leaves, then from that you can maybe look at potential uh, trades to be sustained. If you look at potential outcomes where uh, maybe he doesn't get anything through or half of the things through, which things are he's going to get through, who's that going to affect, then well, any professional traders will start to front run those ideas before they get there and book their profits when it becomes a realisation. So, of course, if we look at the, the last quarter, as things are right now, they always change, of course. Um, the easiest theme for me right now is it's, it's long, dollar, short, emerging markets um, because you've got that in all the time he's not actually in the White House he, there's the potential he may be on those big trade tariffs and in doing so uh, you could start to pick off for which, which uh, countries is more likely to be affected by what and if you look at it uh, the Malaysian ringgit um, the Korean won they're all tanking for other reasons but also because of that US dollar long trade and the fact that they're, they're exporters so that's also been weighing down the Aussie and the Kiwi and when we look at what happened after the event out of the Three major commodity currencies: that's Odds, CAD, and Kiwi. It was the Kiwi dollar that was the worst hit, and it makes sense because it it's a relatively small economy, so it would be theoretically harder hit if Trump decided to put tariffs on everybody.
1: Sounds like if you're a currency investor, you're going to need uh, nerves of steel, Matt. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pretty fun. Well, it's a tender topic, isn't it, Leon? Well, it's been fascinating to watch and it's just so hard to predict what's going on because it's all driven by politics as well. Well, indeed it is. And
0: Trump, of course, is the wild card in it at the moment. At the moment. And then the reaction of China, possible reaction of China, is another wild card.
1: That's right. And of course, you've got elections going on in Europe. And Brexit. And Brexit. That's going to affect it as well.
0: Almost hit 73 against the US dollar, didn't we?
1: We, we actually went down that far. We actually went down that far. That's because of a stronger US dollar.
0: Now, Sinclair Davidson.
1: Sinclair-Davidson, we're heading towards MyEFO, 19th of December, and all the signs are that uh, it's going to be much worse. Uh, Deloitte Access Economics says that there'll be a budget blowout. Standard & Poor's is saying they're expecting better things, which is a
3: way of warning Australia that if they don't, our ratings will be cut. Uh, What's your view about that? I think we will see the MyEFO just before Christmas. Um, If they could get it out at midnight on the 24th, I think they will. It, it, it's not a good sign at all. I, I think the, the, the warning of a $40 billion budget blowout um, is, is – well, not $40 billion, but a, a deficit of $40 billion – is about $3 billion more than what we were led to believe at uh, the last budget. This is a problem, and I think it, it's, it's a collective failure of, uh, of our friends in Canberra. Uh, between the previous government and the current government, they just haven't been able to get a handle – on what it requires to get the budget back into uh, um, surplus or or even just balanced. Um, It is certainly a problem on both sides of politics.
1: Well, they're they're trying to drive cost cuts through the uh, Senate at the moment.
3: The the cost cuts that they are pushing through very often are very small items. They're very symbolic items. It's form above substance. There isn't actually a serious commitment to belt tightening, um, a serious commitment to cutting back. Uh, they've been trying to push through, you know, small deviations here and then changing taper rates um, and then also uh, clamping down on concessions, which is actually really a tax increase. So they, they've been trying to increase taxes where they can, and they've been doing very marginal changes around uh, um, actually cutting expenditure. And I think that is the problem. If, if, if you recall back to 1996 when the Howard government first came into office, the first couple of years they cut spending very dramatically, and we grew after that. Neither Mr. Swan nor Mr. Hockey nor Mr. Morrison seem to have it in them to, to sort of exercise that level of discipline.
1: At the same time, though, the, uh, they've got the omnibus bill through.
3: I mean, that, that's. Yes, $6 billion of savings over several years in the context of a $3 billion blowout in six months. So, yes, they, they did get it through where they banked what everybody agreed on at the last election. But bearing in mind that we we can't just bank on what we can agree on, we've actually got to have some economic leadership out there and drive big changes. And I I think when you have uh, former Prime Minister Paul Keating in the last week actually saying that there's a lack of serious economic leadership in the country, Um, he drove it very dramatically in the mid-1980s. We saw Costello doing it in the 1990s and early noughties. And since then, really, we've been resting on our laurels, arguing over all sorts of other things. There's a lot of bread and circuses going on in Canberra at the moment, lots of talk from the immigration minister and what have you. But these are all distractions from the actual main game. At
1: the same time, as you say, they're trying to raise taxes, they're trying to push through the uh, change of the backpackers tax. Yes. Bill, they're, uh, and they're changing superannuation concessions as yes. well. But as you say, that's all tax rises. That's all coming from the other
3: end. Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, it's, if, if you have a look at the, the superannuation changes and some of the uh, um, recommendations made by the Grattan Institute uh, yesterday, um, they're actually trying to tax old people, retired people, um, and of course, the, the, that's where people are living off their savings. They've actually got less capacity to pay more tax, even though it looks like uh, uh, they are, are are getting these massive benefits. In actual fact, they've they, they've accumulated their savings very often in the pre superannuation era, in the pre Howard Costello tax cut era. If you remember, tax rates here in Australia were up at sixty percent once upon a time. So it's 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 trying to whack the same people again who've actually got less capacity to pay.
1: Now, what's your view about... I mean, the government at the same time is trying to get uh, their tax package through, the one that they went to the election with. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're doing this at a time when they're struggling to balance the budget. I mean, what's your view
3: about that? Well, it's, it's, it's a case of how seriously do you take Laffer effects. Now, if, if you think about the Laffer curve as a mathematical uh, um, entity, it's entirely true. The question is, as a practical matter, where are we? Now, the, the idea of lowering tax rates from 30% or 28.5% for very small businesses down to 25% over 10 years is not something that I would think is actually a, a very serious economic reform. I would be looking at pushing down Australian company tax rates down to, say, 20% over a much quicker time frame in order to have more profitable companies having more money to invest more. Bearing in mind the Australian company tax rate is more or less paid by foreigners it's not paid by Australians. so this would be something that we'd hope to attract investment into Australia. Now where this becomes even more interesting is Mr Trump is talking about lowering US company tax rates down to 15 percent. Now the thing to understand about the American company tax system is that it doesn't raise that much revenue. Australia's company tax does raise a lot of revenue so The reliance on tax revenue in Australia and United States from tax from company tax is very different. Lowering the company tax system here will cost the Australian government money. Lowering the American company tax system won't cost the American government that much money. But when it comes to where will you invest, will you open up new plants and manufacturing in the US or will you think about doing it here? it actually starts mattering. Our company tax system must be thought of not just in terms of raising revenue for government, but actually economic uh, growth. And I think that's where we haven't thought very hard about it. And that's where I think a lot of discussion and debate needs to actually come.
1: And so they will struggle to get those tax changes through.
3: Oh, absolutely, they will struggle to get those tax changes true. At the same time, of course, the government is blaming their blowout in the budget um, from a, a low wage growth. So the thing to always remember in Australia, we are very highly reliant on the income tax, both the per- personal income tax and the company income tax. Most other OBCD countries are less reliant on direct levels of taxation and more reliant on indirect levels of taxation. So income tax reform, both uh, personal and corporate, actually has very serious or more serious consequences here than it does in other countries, which is why we've got to think more carefully when we actually go about doing those sorts of things. So what sort of cuts should they be doing? I would think that uh, the company tax system uh, rate is going to have to come down one way or the other anyway. I think the personal income tax system, the, the 45 plus bracket needs to come down as well. Um, I think we need to actually start thinking in terms of what what tax changes are going to do to drive economic growth as opposed to what tax changes are going to enhance efficiency. Sorry, um, fairness as opposed to efficiency. In the last few years, we've always viewed high taxes on high income individuals or high tax rates on high income individuals from a perspective of fairness and not given much thought from a perspective of economic growth and efficiency. So those tax changes that will drive employment are probably more important than those tax changes that will actually make people feel good about the tax system overall. So we need to put efficiency back first and foremost, as opposed to other values such as, say, fairness.
1: Right. And of course, uh, we've got the employment, the job market has completely stopped expanding.
3: Absolutely. I I think uh, an unemployment rate of 5.6% is is certainly unacceptable in in a country such as Australia. We should have that much lower. And, of course, the participation rate needs to be a lot higher.
1: Well, participation rate has dropped to a decade low. Yes. And uh, what also is striking is that uh, all the jobs being created uh, are part-time. So low-paid part-time jobs in areas like restaurants and hotels. Uh, So wages aren't increasing at all.
3: No, no. And and, and this is problematic, is, is that when you are highly reliant on an income tax system, the government actually does need to have wage growth. And not nominal wage growth needs to have real wage growth because nominal wage growth, of course, looks very nice. People are happy to receive a higher salary, but of course, that just drives you into a higher tax bracket. So on an after-tax basis, on a purchasing power basis, you're actually worse off. So we need to have good jobs at the same time as uh, real wages actually increasing as opposed to nominal wages. Of course, government love nominal wage increases because they get to tax more. But it's actually the real r- wages that will actually make people happier and more content and more satisfied with their life.
1: So in other words, we need uh, policies, we need measures uh, in the MIFO that will increase efficiencies and and drive real wage growth and drive real
3: jobs. And and not just MIFO, I think we need to start debating those things sooner rather than later. And we actually have to have a program of these things because just things being announced in MIFO would be sort of very sort of panicky whereas I'd actually like to see a sustained discussion around economic growth and narrative around growing the economy and actually leading people to have better and more prosperous lives. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
0: So, what do you think of that?
1: Well, I can't see Australia getting out of a credit downgrade.
0: No, it looks inevitable, doesn't it?
1: That's right. I mean, Standard & Poor's has basically intimated that this week.
0: Yep. And the others will follow along. That's right. So we're taking a bit of a a beating. Absolutely. All right. Now, the news, and that's just as vigorous.
1: For a start, President-elect Donald Trump has declared that the Trade-Pacific Partnership is toast. Releasing a video on his Facebook page this week which outlined his key policy platform ahead of his inauguration on January 20, Mr Trowell vowed to pull out of the TPP which is the largest trade pack in history uh, which Australia's signatory to and I notice uh, Australia is still holding out hope. Uh, Steve Siobo our trade minister was talking about maybe we can keep the TPP going by bringing China or Indonesia Shinzo Abe was right when he said without the US TPP's dead Absolutely, you'd have to agree with him you'd have to agree with him on that. Now of course that came after leaders of the 21 Asia Pacific nations ended their annual summit pushing back against protection in the face of increased public scepticism about free trade, highlighted by the election of Donald Trump. The Asia-Pacific Economic Forum closed in Lima, Peru with a joint statement seeking to protect free trade, including the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trap which had been uh, thrown into doubt following Trump's election. And of course Trump had campaigned against the TPP, calling it a disaster, a rape of our country, that he claimed would send job overseas. And he'd also pledged to renegotiate the 22 year old North American Free Trade Agreement and adopt a much tougher trade stance with China. And his anti-trade campaign and pledged to staunch the flow of imported goods from China and Mexico, won him crucial blue-collar votes in what had once been Democratic heartland states of Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, helping to swing the result his way. But, you know, I think it's really, really looking not looking good for the TPP, Gary.
0: Well, that's right. I think mean, it's the death knell already. But what doesn't seem to concern Trump is that if the US pulls out of the TPP, the TPP dies and China moves into the gap. China's already got the free trade area for asia pacific going there's a regional comprehensive economic partnership and that's ASEAN and ASEAN, new zealand you get to the point and say well okay
1: do we need the ttp the tpp at, at all and the other issue about trump is i mean how much can he really deliver uh, these are people middle class people on stagnant incomes mm. and they're not going to want handouts no. they don't want handouts and they don't want necessarily tax cuts. They just want economic empowerment. Issues like uh, revolutions in transport and technology have uh, changed employment right around the world. So what's Trump going to do about that? I can't see him delivering.
0: No, that's right. And then, you know, during the election campaign, he says he's going to rebuild the US automotive industry. How? You know, China is already the world's biggest car maker. The Europeans are no slouches. Japan and Europe basically scuppered the American automotive industry. How are you going to rebuild that? That's right indeed
1: anyway don't expect scott morrison's mid-year budget update next month to make any difference according to deloitte access economics wages in a weaker labor market will drag it down and morrison can't rely on high coal prices to boost government revenues access economics uh, says wages and jobs are important because they affect the tax take and the soft wages growth will see treasury cutting its forecast for personal income tax revenue blowing the budget deficit out over four years to 108.8 billion that's up from the $84.6 billion forecast in the May budget. Potentially, that will delay Australia's forecast returning to surplus in 2020-21 by at least another year, as we discussed with Sinclair. And the warning from Deloitte might be politically important with BlackRock, the world's largest moneymaker, last week warning that Australia could lose its AAA credit rating next month if there are signs of further deterioration in the government's interim budget review. And indeed, Stan and Pause was saying the same thing this week. Now, Deloitte Access Economics predicts that the tax take on individuals will fall short of the budget Forecast by 1.3 billion in 2016-17 and by 2 billion in 2017-18. That's really important. So it's a slow wages growth that's holding everything up. In
0: a sense, it's zero growth wages growth, isn't it?
1: I mean, Morrison says Parliament must pass savings and revenue measures in the next. T- a week or so to protect the nation's AAA credit rating while signalling the government's 2020 return to surplus could again be delayed. So let's see. Now, big news uh, this week, Gary, was that the government is now confident it will have the numbers to pass its complete package of industrial relations form after the first of its critical bills passed the Senate in a late-night sitting, and the Senate passed a controversial bill to establish a registered organisations commission at 2.15am on Tuesday. And the legislation will see union officials regulated the same way as company directors. Now, the bill, of course, was one of the two that Malcolm Turnbull used as triggers for the July 2 double dissolution. And the government only secured the support of the Senate crossbenchers after agreed to new federal whistleblower laws to secure the votes of Nick Xenophon team, Senators and Independent Senator Darren Hinch. Now, the second bill is the one reestablishing the Australian Building Construction Commission, and debate around that bill is expected to be much more rugged. And a final vote on that might not be until next week.
0: But it looks as though it's um, on its way in.
1: Well, Darren Hinch reckons it's going to be a Christmas present for Malcolm Turnbull.
0: Yeah, that's right. And he says if they if they squib it, he and the Xenophons will um, go after them.
1: That's right. Now, the uh, other interesting thing is another big win for the government was that $3 billion suite of superannuation changes cleared the parliament with the Senate support of the Senate crossbench. And the package includes non-concessional super contributions being limited to $100,000 a year from July 1st, 2017 down from uh, 180000 now with scope for catch-up contributions. Individuals with a super balance of more than $1.6 will no longer be eligible to make after-tax contributions. And these measures represent the most significant change to the system in more than a decade. And, of course, it came after a great deal of heartache for the government because it actually cracked down on high-income earners and that alienated the Liberal Party base.
0: It, it had to come, though. That's right. Yeah, they were stacking away millions at 15%
1: tax. That's right. Well, it had to happen. Now, uh, Treasurer Scott Morrison has hinted that the government might consider a Grattan Institute proposal to wind back tax breaks for older Australians. It could save about $1 billion a year. And the tax break sees many seniors paying less tax than younger workers because the senior pensions is tax offset and the higher Medicare levy income threshold. Seniors also receive a higher rebate on their private health insurance and younger workers on the same amount of money. And the Grattan Institute, in a report on Monday recommended the government remove the three tax perks, claiming these were unjustified. They flowed primarily to people who were well off at a time when younger households were carrying the burden, of fixing the budget. And Morrison said the proposals had to be considered in the context of the government's full program of savings measures that is trying to get through the Senate. The other interesting th- bit of news uh, for the economy was that the falling Australian dollar and last week's disappointing jobs figures showing no growth in the labour market have dented consumer confidence. The ANZ-Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index doubled 2.3% the week ending November 20, and that followed a marginal 0.3% increase the week before. Now, alarmingly, household views on economic conditions over the next 12 months and 5 years crashed, 5.6% and 7.5% respectively in one week, and in a bad sign for retailers in the lead-up to Christmas, household views on whether now is a good time to buy a household item fell 0.7%, and that followed the 1% fall last week. Well, more bad news for retailers is that with barely 30 shopping days until Christmas, WISPEC research shows Australians plan to spend less this Christmas than they did last year. In its November Consumer Sentiment Report, the bank posed an additional question. Are they planning to spend less, about the same, or more than last year? The results show consumers taking a more restrained approach in 2016. 34% plan to spend less, 52% the same, and 14% more. And that compares to 30% spending less... Fifty-three percent spending more, and seventeen percent the same in two thousand fifteen. That left the two thousand sixteen reading at seventy-nine point nine, down from eighty-seven in two thousand fifteen. Now the value of construction work has nosedived four point nine percent to a value of forty-six point one five billion in seasonally adjusted terms. The figures from the ABS were far more severe than the analyst forecast of one point seven percent fall. In percentage terms, the value of construction work done has fallen 11.1% from a year ago. The figures not only reflect the downturn in the mining industry, they're all over the place. Our Residential building work rose 0.6%, but non-residential building work was down 3.1% for the September quarter. Engineering work fell 5.6%, and the seasonally adjusted estimate of total building work fell 5.7% to $25.8 in September quarter.
0: Melbourne's a big worry, of course, with all the big apartment blocks in uh, the CBD, and a lot of them are empty. That's right. Lord Mayor Robert Doyle's concerned that uh, the apartment towers are crowding out offices.
1: Good, interesting corporate news, Gary. This is really, really fascinating. Boral expects to substantially increase the size of its US division with the $3.5 billion acquisition of US-based construction material manufacturer Headwaters. Headwaters is a leading manufacturer of building products. It's one of the largest marketers of fly ash in the USA, so the transaction will significantly increase Boral's exposure to the US market. And, of course, that comes at a time when Donald Trump is talking about infrastructure spending, so that's pretty good. It is. There you go.
0: Foreign company, Australia, taking advantage of Trump's planning.
1: Indeed. Now, fascinating piece of news, Gary, this week was an international technology giant Fujitsu will be the anchor tenant of a $17 million high-tech precinct that could potentially create hundreds of jobs in the Latrobe Valley, which has been hit hard by the closure of the Hazelwood Power Plant. And Victoria Premier Daniel Andrews announced a $17 million investment from the state government, bringing Fujitsu together with the new Morwell Tech School, Federation University, Federation Training and private tenants. And the aim is to promote innovation, productivity and job creation, focusing on growing sectors in Gippsland, such as New Energy, health, food and fibre and professional services. Fujitsu will open a health a service centre at the precinct helping drive an innovation laboratory where local research, business and education sectors will have access to Fujitsu's computer and data and analytics capabilities. Now, this announcement comes several weeks after French Utility Energy said it would close its Hazelwood power station in March. Of course, Hazelwood closures would see 1,000 jobs lost in Morwell, a town with an unemployment rate of close to 20%. And construction of the precinct is expected to create 80 new jobs, and there's an expectation that hundreds of new jobs will follow. I mean, that's great stories. It's a
0: very good story, yeah. Labor government. I think that's a really, really good move. pattern of what they're trying to promote there suits Gippsland because it's a great food bowl.
1: Now, Australian agricultural company profit has dipped 4% to 47.9 million for the six months of 30th of September. At the same time, however, the uh, AACO is building its branded beef sales, and that's where the profit is, from 86% of total group sales to 92%. And the company shifted its strategy from live cattle to premium branded meat. It's the biggest provider of Wagyu beef in Australia. It's sales revenue has fallen from $214.1 million in the six month period down from uh, $260.7 million in the same period. As I said it has the world's biggest Wagyu beef herd and it plans to roll out more of its Wagyu brief launches overseas in 2017 and it launched its flagship luxury Westholm and Wailara brands in October in Singapore plans to launch these bridges to other key markets over the next 18 months and Wagyu branded sales for the first half of the financial year rose by 6% in value to $13.59 So what,
0: what they Really doing is aiming at the growing wealth of the middle classes in Asia. And Wagyu beef is the way to go. Absolutely.
1: And that's it for this week, Gary. Great Leon. Next week we've got a great chat with uh, Jerry Tucker, who runs Nice Systems, and he's gonna be talking to us all about privacy. It's a nice name, nice. Nice, no, <laughs> indeed, indeed. And that's it for us this week. You can tune in to us on Talking Business, on Twitter and Talking BizBR Double Z or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.